Welcome to episode number 25 of The Thermal. I'm your host, Harry Tenkate. In this episode of The Thermal, we hear from racing pilot Katrin Senna, who just flew in the Italian qualifying round of the World Gliding Grand Prix. On the other side of the English Channel, we catch up with G. Dale, gliding author, coach, and competition pilot. He has just finished writing edition number four of The Soaring Engine and Soar America, one pilot's quest to fly from the west coast to the east coast in stages. We catch up with this intrepid pilot in Mississippi. That's all on this edition of the Thermal Podcast. Gliding isn't always about winning contests or flying record-breaking distance flights. Sometimes it's about setting your own goals. Eric Carden is doing just that and is in the middle of an epic gliding adventure. He's flying his LAC 17B Mini from the west coast of America to the east coast. It's a complicated journey and every day is different. Eric crossed the Mississippi River yesterday and is making good eastward progress. Hello Eric, Uh, how is the uh, tripping going so far? Good morning. Uh, we've been having a, a good time. The trip had a long pause in Texas due to weather, about a month off. Uh, but uh, the last several days has been good. Just flew four days in a row. I'm tired. Need some sleep. I'm glad for a day off due to uh, weather. Mm-hmm. And it looks like we'll be here in western Mississippi for a few days due to weather. So you, you crossed the Mississippi River yesterday, I saw on your blog. I did, barely. I got about (laughs) 20 miles across the river. Uh, The conditions deteriorated to my right and left were towering clouds. And in the middle, where it looked more benign, it just turned blue and put me on the ground after a a two-and-a-half-hour flight. So I was going to say, is that typically hot, humid weather out uh, in that part of the world? It is humid in the southeast, typically. Uh, Yesterday's forecast was for such a low cloud base that I almost didn't fly. So I guess I should be happy I made any progress. I did decide to fly. The highest I got was 3,300 feet above the ground. I spent most of the flight 2,500 or so feet above the ground. So that's just not much height to get me to the next airport. It was tough. That's hard work. And did you land at an airport? I did. I always try to land at not only an airport, but an airport from which I think I could safely self-launch. And so far, I've managed to do that, except in one case in Texas, I landed at an airstrip that was only 50 feet wide, which is just five feet wider than my wings, and there were runway lights right on the edge of the pavement, and I didn't want to try taking off from there, so I backed up to the previous airport and launched from there. So are there any particular rules to this project? The rules are just ones I made up. It's, it's, the project is just a, a fun thing I had in mind to do. So I made the rules uh, for myself. The most important one is that every flight must cross over some part of the previous flight so that in the end it's a continuous track all the way across the country. And also very important, because I'm flying with a self-launching glider, 
is that I don't count any time with the motor on, and I only let myself have one motorless segment per day. So I can't get to a tough area, turn the motor on, troll around till I find better lift, then turn the motor off, climb back up, cross my track, and keep going. I can't stitch together pieces of flights. Only one motorless segment per day. So a pure gliding cross-country epic exactly. journey, if you will. Yeah, Cool. Exactly. So the, the whole purpose of the motor is just to replace having to bring a tow plane and a tow pilot with me. I also have limits on altitude loss, like the international rules for records, so I won't let myself self lose more than you know, 1% of the flown distance or one kilometer of height, whichever is less. I've also made a rule that my cumulative height loss all the way across the country must be zero or less. And at the moment, uh, my cumulative, cumulative height loss is minus 15 or 16,000 feet, which means I, I have 15 or 16,000 feet in the bank that I wasn't able to do anything with, which if I just converted that into one glide, I'd have another 120 miles. <laughs> Eric, has this kind of flight been uh, done before? It was done once before, to my knowledge, by Bob Fisher in 1961 so coincidentally 60 years ago this year and he did it the more difficult way flew a northerly route from seattle washington to new york it's a longer distance that way soaring conditions in the north part of the country are typically not as good and he started and finished over salt water hmm. where i'm giving myself about a 50 mile buffer from the coast due to conditions not generally being that good for soaring near the coast. And he did it before GPS, before cell phones, before internet, uh, before uh, soaring. Forecasting was as advanced as it is now. Quite a feat. Mine, if I succeed, still doesn't uh, measure up to what he did. Well, it's still still pretty fantastic what you're doing. I mean, it's, it's, (laughs) it's still pretty fantastic. Eric, tell me a bit about, about the glider that you're flying. I understand you, you mentioned it's an electric self-launcher. Yes, I'm flying a Mini LAC, a LAC 17B Mini, which is the 13.5-meter LAC. Uh, it has the FES electric propulsion system on it and is certified as a self-launcher. I was seeking out an electric self-launcher for this trip. I wanted a self-launcher rather than have to take a tow plane and tow pilot, but I really didn't want the hassle and complexity of the gasoline engine, so I thought I'd try electric, and and so this is what I went with. You know, if if there was an electric self-launching 15 or 18 meter glider readily available, I probably would have probably would have gone that route. So I'm taking a little bit of a performance hit to get an electric self-launcher. And what's your impression so far? It's working well. I, I think it has a, a glide ratio somewhere around 40, which is uh, maybe slightly less than that, which is similar to the LS3 I was flying before. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not a 45 or 50 like some of the longer span gliders. It's fairly quick, uh, partially because of the extra 110 pounds or so of propulsion system. Mm-hmm which that's good for bucking the headwind. It's and just generally making time. It's not 
quite as easy in the narrow thermals. And I've had to deal with some high-pressure days with really narrow thermals. It's doable, but it's a little more challenging than with a uh, lighter glider. Right. Self-launching performance seems fine. Uh, it, it takes off just fine and climbs four or five knots. I did have a little trouble a time or two in uh, Texas on days with a forecast high of 100 degrees. Things started hitting temperature limits, but it, it still worked out okay. Now, I understand you have a team on the ground that, that sort of hits the road uh, almost like they did in contest flying uh, many decades ago. They, they follow you as you fly? Yes, I'm a lucky man to have the support team I have. My wife is with me, and, and old-time old friends of ours from that we've known for 20 years or more are with us on the trip to uh, Tim and Diane. Now, Tim had to go back to work uh, a few weeks ago, but Diane has stayed with us. So we have two Class B motorhomes. You know, they're Sprinter vans turned into RVs that we're living in on the road. So they helped me get launched. We use a, you know, a, an RV to tow the glider down the runway or taxiway pre-takeoff. Tim or Julie run my wing to help keep the wings leveling off the ground. And then... I text them from the air through my Garmin inReach each time I have the next airport made, and they move along, and usually they're at the airport within 30 minutes of me landing. Ha! Fantastic. Fantastic. Hey, well, it is. It's great. They support me uh, really well. I, I feel uh, I'm not worthy of the support <laughs> I get from this team. Hey, what, what's been the best part of the journey so far? I think probably the most interesting part is, is the stories we find on the ground. You know, what, what town are we in? Where are we? Uh, who are the people here? You know, getting picked up by strangers on the road. I, I got taken to a restaurant. It wasn't open yet. The owners opened the doors early to let me in. They fed me, even though I was flying with no money, no form of payment. They said, ah, it's fine. We'll settle up when your crew gets here. <laughs> All sorts of neat stories like that of places we've landed. You know, the flying's great. I love the flying. But I think the whole team gets to enjoy the adventure that happens between flights. Now, has COVID-19 had any impact on this trip? We've noticed little or no COVID impact. That was a real concern of ours before we started. But thankfully, about the time we had in mind to start the trip, early May, Things were getting better under control, and a lot of uh, restrictions were being lifted. So mm-hmm. we've had little or no. There have been a few places we've been in where we've been asked to put on masks, but very few. And all four of us were fully vaccinated before the trip started. Fantastic. Yeah, that'll give a, a lot. Uh, it'll help with any anxiety you may have had. Right. Yeah, that was a real concern. Hmm. So... When do you anticipate reaching the Atlantic coast? Oh, that's the million-dollar question. I am 560 or 70 miles straight line from my tentative landing place, which from the start has been the Ridgeland, South Carolina airport, home of the Low Country Soaring Association, I believe. Mm -hmm. It's the only soaring club operating near the Atlantic coast. Uh, from Jacksonville, there's one there, Florida, 
all the way up to Virginia. So I think it'd be fun to land where there's a soaring club. So, so far, my average flight has been 120 miles, anywhere from about 40 miles to 260 or 70. So if you just take that average, we're looking at five more flights. And if there's one flying day every three or four, we're looking at two or three weeks. So if all goes well, two or three weeks, somewhere around Charleston, South Carolina, or Savannah, Georgia. Nice. Well, I'm going to give the listeners uh, information on how to follow this uh, epic journey of yours on your website and blog so they can follow along on this. I wish you all the best, and it's been a real pleasure chatting with you. Thank you. I've enjoyed it, too. Thanks for your patience. Safe flying. Thank you. Okay, Eric. Take care. Bye-bye. Eric Carden spoke to me from Indianola, Mississippi. If you want to follow Eric's progress, go to soaramerica.wordpress.com. That's soaramerica.wordpress.com. You can also connect on Facebook. Just search for Soar America. The Thermal Podcast is proud to promote Proving Grounds, an automated task scoring platform designed to safely turn novice glider pilots into cross-country soaring pilots. Proving Grounds is now in use in Canada, Europe, and the United States. And the Soaring Society of America now joins the Soaring Association of Canada by providing support for gliding clubs who want to implement this fabulous cross-country motivational tool. Check out episode 15 of The Thermal, where co-founder Patrick McMahon talks about Proving Grounds and how it works. For more information, go to their website, which is soaringtasks, all one word, dot com. That's soaringtasks.com. Proving Grounds is especially a hit among novice pilots who want to learn how to safely fly beyond gliding distances of the club. The last qualifying contest of the Sailplane Grand Prix series is over. It was a very hard-fought contest held in Varanasi, Italy in June. Unlike traditional gliding contests, the Grand Prix is more like a sailing race where everyone starts at the same time. The 10th Sailplane Grand Prix World Final will be held in the French Alps this September. Catherine Senna is a world-class racing pilot and has flown in contests all over the world. She placed fourth in her JS3, narrowly missing out on a place in the final contest. Catherine has been on the podcast a number of times. I've reached Catherine at home in Edlingen, Germany. Hello, Catherine. Uh, congratulations on a very respectable finish in, the, in a difficult contest. Thank you, Harry, for having me here on your podcast. Well, it was, it was fun to sort of follow parts of the contest and how you were doing. Talk to me about the conditions and the geography where this contest took place. So this contest uh, took part in north of Italy, very close to the Swiss border. Um, the place is called Varese. And it lies beautifully, the, the airfield between the Lago Maggiore, only 10 kilometers to the west, and to the other um, pretty lakes in Switzerland, like uh, Lugana Lake, Lago di Como, Lago di Garda, more to the east. So it's surrounded by, by foothills directly, but if you go 15 kilometers, 20 kilometers to the north, the mountains get uh, fairly high quite quickly. So stunning geography. It's a stunning geography, you're right, yeah, because the valleys are so full of green colors and then the mountains go up and they get 
brown and then you have the white clouds in the blue sky so it's and the sailboats and the and the ships running in the lake so it's beautiful the scenery really beautiful so sightseeing is one thing what's it like for a competition glider pilot uh yeah, I think it's quite different from flying in the flatlands or the, the small hillish areas like we fly in the south part of Germany where you have the Black Forest or the Schwäbische Alb. Um, it's, a, it's a bit more challenging because sometimes you have to pass a pass at a certain level to be able to continue the task on, on the shortest um, leg or on the shortest way, and you have to take into consideration different aspects which you normally don't have when flying in the flat areas. And what is also, of course, uh, sometimes a problem when you fly in north of Italy, it is crowded with streets and with buildings, so outlanding possibilities you only have very few. So this you also have to be aware of. And Margot, who has organized the competition and who is the president of the air from, of the airport Varese, um, she also explained to us that they had four outlandings of gliders in lakes because there were no uh, outlanding fields available. So the pilots decided to land in the lakes in the water. <laughs> Th- that's been the last few years, you mean? Ah, I think they had four four landings like this in Italy, in all of North Italy. <laughs> The, the last year. Wow, that's interesting. Yeah, yeah. So it is quite densely populated that area. Now, but it's still. Beautiful. The other part of this contest that's interesting. It's not your traditional contest. This is a Grand Prix contest. It's quite different from the normal contests we fly around the world. Yeah, for me, it was also the first competition uh, with a Grand Prix start, I must admit. Um, so I think the main difference is that you have a regatta start where you have a countdown counting towards the, the defined start time. Mm-hmm. And so you don't have to make yourself any tactical um, yeah thoughts when to leave and when is the best window to leave so you just say 10 minutes uh, it's time to go and then the countdown starts and you just start all at once and within the two first um climbs it it it, it always was was like uh yeah the group separated quite fast so after the second thermal you took it was uh it was not a bunch or a crowd anymore so it was really okay do you, do you prefer this type of flying to the traditional contest, or does it matter to you? Oh, I, I cannot I cannot yet say if I prefer it or not. It was the first time now for me, and I think it only works when you have a maximum participant number of 15. With more pilots, I think it, it will not work that nicely. Uh, maybe also with 20 participants for, for regatta start would be, I think, still appropriate. But if you have a national competitions and we in Germany, we normally have 45 and 80 meter class or so. I don't think this start method will work with, with more gliders than 20. Then the crowd and the gaggles get, I think, too big. Mm-hmm. So yeah. therefore, I think... Yeah, you did. We have the traditional starting method. Now, getting back to this particular contest, what were the, the high and low points for you in this, this contest? Because I, I know up until the last day, you were actually in contention for winning. 
for winning. No, not really for first place because Jill Navahi did an extraordinary good competition and he was flying very constantly every day. No, the first day. But, but, getting, uh, but getting on to the next round, sorry, I should have been clear. Uh, so on to the next round, yeah. <laughs> yeah, the last day I really had bad luck because we, we from the west, there were thunderstorms coming up and the cloud got shadowed up completely and I was uh, yeah, on top of the whole gaggle and continued because I said, oh, if the shadow comes in and the rain comes in, then you better have to go. And I um, went around the last turn point quite low so you had to go around the mountains over the lake very not so high and I, I was missing one thermal and um, to the south the sun was coming up again and also some sun arrived to the ground so I thought oh, maybe I'm lucky and I just need one more climb I think I was a bit too early there because the others who came later they found then along the ridge uh, uh, a thermal and they got home quite easily so I lost it there so did, did you have to Maybe stretch your range? Maybe it was. You, you didn't have to stretch your range. Yeah, I had to last day. Yes, I oh. did. But All just right. eight kilometers from the from the airport. Now that was a bit of bad luck, maybe. But others than that, yeah. On the first day, it also was a bit tricky, and I decided to do best light and ride on track. And the others, they tried to follow the foothills and. Uh, Quite a lot, they had to start their engine and I was able to make it just home. So that was also quite nice. Uh, now, actually, during the flight, it's really nice that that kind of racing against each other because, you know, right away where you are. So on final glide, you can count the, the gliders in front of you and you know exactly where you are and how, where you were good and not. So mm. it's, uh, it's really it was an enjoyable competition. Also in the evening, we all normally all went... Uh, out for dinner together, so with 15 pilots, it's a very familiar surrounding. Right, unlike a large contest where you don't get to know people. Yeah, sometimes it's difficult if there are too many, of course. So yeah. I, I gather um, a lot of this when, is, is about timing, you know, when you all start at the same time and you get spread out a little bit on the course, as you mentioned earlier in the la on the last day, the people that were slightly behind you managed to pick up the, the better weather when... When you were slightly ahead and and uh, the the rain showers moved in, yeah, yeah, or the the, the coverage, the cloud coverage, which mm. which spread, uh, which didn't allow thermals to develop because it was shadowed completely. Yeah, yeah, but no, it was fun. Yeah, so, uh, so I I understand there was also a day where uh, I think more than half the the contestants didn't make it back. There was a, a lot of landouts. Mm, yeah, this was in the beginning because the the whole period, or we we were able to fly every day, which is awesome. So it doesn't happen that you have seven competition days in one week. But of course, it was a quite instable air mass, and we had uh, the possibilities of thunderstorms and uh, rain every day. So uh, the two hours, three hours were just always perfect as a as a small window to to fit in. So mm -hmm. we were doing small tasks, and as you said, also at one day, uh, I think half had to outland because it was not possible to come home. Right. Well, it, take the it, it's, you, did, you did extremely well in this contest, and it's, it's too bad you didn't quite make it to the top to move on to the Grand Prix championships, which are, I think are being held uh, late August, early September in France. Yeah, I think they're in September in France, but uh, yeah, they all were wondering, so who is... Because I think three Grand Prix qualifyings didn't take place, so they have a few places to fill up. But I don't know how they will, 
how they will fill up the places which are still uh, uh, remaining in France. So we'll have to wait and see what happens. So is, is there a chance you may still get a phone call? Well, maybe, maybe. Something <laughs> <laughs> like that, but yeah, I don't know. We'll have to wait and see what the friends are doing. Depends. So here yeah. in the Northern Hemisphere, we're still in the middle of summer. Uh, what's uh, any other contests coming up for you this year? Um, all German contests in Germany, all contests in Germany have been cancelled due to COVID. So oh, it was not possible for for the air for the air clubs um, to provide sufficient uh, sanitary security. So mm-hmm. we we cancelled all competition, which is a bit sad because all our surrounding countries are having their national championships. So it doesn't matter where you go. It's Austria and Switzerland, Italy, France, Belgium, Denmark. Everybody is having their national or regional championships. So it's a bit sad for the German gliding community at the moment, but we cannot yeah. do I, anything about it. I know it how is. that goes. I mean, here in Canada, we're pretty, well, different parts of the country have opened up. Um, we only just started gliding recently, but south of the border in the States, everybody's flying. The contests are on. Everything's hunky-dory, but this side of the, the border, uh, not much. Mm. Yeah, yeah. But I will. I still plan to go to Rieti for the um, Copa Internazionale del Mediterraneo. Uh, that's a super nice competition in the center of Italy, mm-hmm. with, also with nice mountain flying. So I still hope that we can go there. And, and I imagine and you're looking forward to the next uh, Women's World Gliding Championships in the UK next year. Yeah, that's, so that's also still in plan. <laughs> well, Katrin, yeah. again, c- congratulations on a hard-fought contest. You, you did very well, but unfortunately, you didn't quite make the, the top. But if, if that phone call comes through, I'll, I'll, I'll be cheering from you on this side of the Atlantic. Okay, let's see what happens. Okay. Okay. Ka- Always a pleasure, Katrin. Thank you very much. You're welcome, Harry. Have a nice day. You too. Take care. Bye-bye. Katrin Senna spoke to me from Aidling in Germany. To find out the latest on the Sailplane Grand Prix, go to sgp.aero. That's sgp.aero. Gliding technology and design is never static. As a matter of fact, the technological change in this century alone has been tremendous. Everything from glider design to open source glide computers that go on your mobile phone. G. Dale is a professional glider pilot, coach, author, and contest pilot. Volume 4 of his popular series, The Soaring Engine, is now out. G. joins me from Lasham, the United Kingdom, where he is trying to fly in the national championships. Hey, G, thanks for coming back onto the show. Yeah, that's great. So, listen, before we get into Volume 4, what are you flying and how is the contest going? Uh, I'm flying an ASW24 in the standard class. It's just slightly modified ASW24 with Nixon winglets. Mm -hmm. Schleicher did a pretty smart thing, and they certified a generic winglet shape, shape and shape and um, sort of specification for generic winglets. So it's easy to put different winglets on the glider. And uh, the original 
24 wingers are sort of stubs, not very good, not very good wingers. So uh, it's okay as a standard class glider. You wouldn't take it to a Worlds, but um, in, in a national competition, you could do all right. It's, it's fine. Uh, it's a beautiful glider anyway. Oh, 24 is a lovely, lovely ship. I've, I've had one for 13 years, and, and this one we bought recently when they changed the club class rules. And, uh, yeah, it works for two classes, so it's great. And so how's the contest going? <laughs> Right. Well, it's Friday now. I think we flew the first. We flew one day in the first weekend, and that was just. It turned into a distance day. We lost off the grid. Our team, our club class team, they're really smart. Um, the guys I fly with are really smart, and they're really focused on um, international flying and strategic flying. And if we have a weakness, we have a bit of a tendency to start a bit late we've done it a couple of times flying the nationals is not quite like flying an international um especially flying in british conditions because generally in the uk if it's um if it's okay now it's as good as it's going to get and um in the uk because it's an island uh, you tend often to be racing the weather you know right. you need to get around before the weather shuts down quite often and whereas in europe in european continental conditions that's not so often the case so we did you just say late. you've had one out of seven days? Yes. Brutal. Yeah, well, it is what it is. There's flying in the UK. You just get over it, you know. It's that classic situation. If you can't take a joke, you shouldn't have joined. <laughs> and uh, we've got to fly. I'd quite like to be able to qualify for a Worlds on an IGC ranking, you know, fly international competitions or fly competitions abroad. Mm -hmm. I mean, of course, all that is. There's none, of, none of that's happening now anyway. But... Um, we have to fly British nationals and, and do well. So what's the outlook? So, do you think you're going to be able to get a contest in or not? Well, it's a contest already. Oh, no, hang on a minute. I think it's a contest already after one day. Um, although selection for the Europeans goes on two days, but then it's not a European selection year in this competition for me. Um, yeah, will we get a competition in? I don't know. I did the Mifflin comp a few years ago, the, the year that Peter Masick died, and... Um, we didn't even get a damn contest in. I went all the way to Mifflin, borrowed Doug Jacobs' glider, and, and <laughs> we didn't all the way to Pennsylvania from Hampshire. Old so, Hampshire, so it was the Hampshire. life of a glider pilot, right? Yeah. Ah, uh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, we might fly tomorrow. We might not. And Sunday looks looks like a pile of poo. So yeah. Um, well, I hope it, for you, it, you do get some flying in, but. We're actually, I've got you on the, the show again to talk about volume four of the Soaring Engine. So we've spoken to you about some of the other volumes. What's the focus of volume four? Well, yeah. Okay. So when I'd written three volumes, I wrote three volumes about, um, two volumes about soaring met conditions, you know, where to go, where to put the glider, how to climb, where to put it. Um, and why and then I wrote a volume about how to operate the glider for best performance you know how you how, how you get your head around performance and the dynamics of the dynamics of performance and psychology performance and training um, so that was all about the weather and the, and the pilot it occurred to me that glider technology has moved on massively um, over the last 30 years. I mean, yeah. I'm flying an SW24 and I've got an Ash 25 and they were both built in 1990. And 
you fly against the latest kit and they just sail past you like you weren't there. The performance has really moved on. Yeah, yeah. And a lot of people who come into gliding, gliding's also moved on. Certainly in Europe, the club scene is not that vibrant. The, the competition scene is pretty neat. People who come into gliding who are going to do it, if they make their way through, quite a lot of those people buy fancy gliders. They buy high-performance complex gliders. Visualize, I don't know, a shark with a jet or a JS1, even an 18-meter JS1 or a G29. Um, there's lots of those around now. High-performance gliders. And you need deep in, uh, pockets. One, you need deep pockets. But two, it doesn't matter how much money you have, you have to learn how to use the kit. Right. Uh, and something like, let's say, an ASG29 with a motor and an LX Vario suite and a Flam and a, 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 an ADS-B out um, a and transponder with an ADS-B. It's a complex environment. And... It's moved on a lot. It's it's just moved on so far. It's moved on so far. My experience of team flying, I've been working with the the, the club class team, is really drawn from ex junior pilots, and they're really on with the technology because they grew up with the technology. You know, right. they did the first first soaring flights with the technology. These these are the guys so, that help you update your cell phone, right? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Tom said to me some time ago, you need to get a WhatsApp group. We'll get on the WhatsApp group for the briefings and stuff. And I said, what's a WhatsApp group? Yeah. And he yeah. said, well, it's an app on your smartphone. And I said, what's a smartphone? Well, I didn't say what's a smartphone. I said, I don't have a smartphone. And he just looked at me and rolled his eyes and said, Pops, get a smartphone. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Occasionally they'd call me Pops, just once in a while. So, so, yeah, I was really behind with all this. And I was sort of struggling with the flam and struggling with... Um, just literally struggling with things like getting in after the flight, downloading my trace, putting it into scoring via the internet, that sort of stuff. I was just struggling with it. Um, I, because it's, it's, I was an, a late adopter to that technology, and I'm not that bright. I'm just <laughs> some reasonable glider pilot because I've done a lot of it, not because I'm a clever boy. So, yeah, so all this kit, all this kit... And it struck me that, that you need a kind of idiot's guide to how the kit works. So I wrote about the airframes, why the airframes are the way they are, um, the, the dynamics modern, of operating the, the airframe. Yeah. yeah, the more modern airframe. Why, you know, why does something like a Ventus 3 or a JS1 or, or even the ASG33 now, they put a lot of effort into a, a wing that has lots of stages of sweepback. Mm-hmm. And um, you know why? Why would you sweep back a glider wing? What's the point? Well, why wouldn't you? Why, I mean, it, we know about elliptical lift distribution and tapering towards the tips, or do we? You know, how many people know why you taper the wing towards the tips, or why aspect ratio controls performance so much, etc., etc. Et no, so I've, I've got to say I when thought, I when I read this review copy of of this volume, I've been around gliding for for decades. Um, I'm an experienced guy, but still, when I get into the weeds, read your book carefully. I'm learning things that I thought I, you know, probably knew, but I actually didn't. So it, even for experienced pilots, it's worth going back to the books a bit. Well, here's the thing. I, I, I'm, I'm a reasonable competition pilot, but I'm not, not exceptional. And I'm a reasonable instructor, but not exceptional. But I do seem to have a habit, a, a, a bit of a talent for, 
for putting stuff down or explaining stuff in a lecture in a way that people sort of take on board. And the thing is, my understanding isn't any deeper than anybody else's. Um, and I've been queried, I've been challenged with one or two of the assumptions I've made writing the book, especially the one about center of gravity and performance. Um, I've had one or two people challenge me over that because I'm not a, an aerodynamicist and I'm not an engineer. But I can put it in words that make sense to people. That's, right. That's the, Kimball, the point. Keep it simple, stupid, and in a, in a way that... It's not so inside baseball that your average person can read it and actually, even if you're not a pilot, you'll come away with some knowledge. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And um, just, <sighs> you, you have to say the same thing in lots of different ways to get through to people. I've, I've been, my other pastime at the moment is flying model airplanes. I'm trying to get to be, really quite good at radio control aerobatics. That's very funny. I literally I literally just came back a kilometer down the road from me is my model field and I'm just learning how to fly that stuff. Oh, okay. So, you know, I I'm trying to take an approach to analyzing how some of the maneuvers have flown. And going back to the books and sort of thinking um, you know, Cassidy and uh, Williams talk about Oh, and Laparon, Xavier Laparon, they talk about uh, things like Lomchevacs. And, and if you look at 3D flying, people fly Lomchevacs. They fly, fly, fly positive conic maneuvers and negative conic maneuvers, and then they involve the something else. And I was just, I was just trying to write that down. I thought, yeah, it, it's, it's like, it's just how I'm wired. If I, if I don't understand it, I can't do it. Mm-hmm. I can't just do it on feel. I have to understand it. So, so yeah, that, that's, that's the basis of the book. The other, the other thing that was really important to me. I happened to have a problem with my SW24. Uh, when I bought it, it was expensive and beautiful, having been reworked. Um, but unfortunately, there was a fault deep in the airframe. The bottom of the fin was broken. Now, I don't know if that's the people that reworked it. I don't know if it was there before. I don't know if it was there after. But it certainly wasn't me that did it because I haven't even had a chance to land it firmly yet. Uh, but the rib in the base of the fin was was marmalized. It, we we have a look, had a look at it. it was completely mullered, delaminated, from, hit, from hitting hill first and landing. No, no, you wouldn't do it like that. It would take a very very violent ground loop to break that down there. Huh? huh. Very violent ground loop. So I discovered that, and it took the glider out of service for quite a long time. It was an expensive job. It wasn't covered by insurance. I had to pay it out of my own pocket, and I got my friends at. Uh, nav boys here on the airfield sean latworth's company the the the, the guys that work nav boys are all young they're all great pilots they're all enthusiastic and and i wanted to watch it happen mm-hmm. and i wanted um i wanted to have ben who does the, the work i wanted him to do a difficult job with a bit of help and learn with it and um you know because they made some money i wanted to want it all to work like sean sean does so they did it for me but the, the result was i just spent a hell of a lot of money on the 24 and in the process, whilst it was at service, I thought, well, I need to upgrade the instrumentation. That's another story. Um, but I needed to go upgrade the instrumentation. So I fitted the latest all singing, all dancers and biggest 9070 LX Vario. Um, and I got a great discount from Sean. I got, you know, good stuff. And I worked with the LX guys a right, bit. But you had to learn and how I to use it. I put quite a lot in the book. I had to learn how to use it. But I wanted to put that in the book. Because to me, it's kind of industry standard. And 
the other Alex company and the ClearNav produce those sort of graphical Vario interfaces, the graphical computer interfaces. It's all reasonably common tech. But the Alex company stuff is really good and really complex. You've got to learn how to use it. So I wanted to write about that. I wanted to write about the basic parameters and how how that's evolving. You know, they've got new, um, there's new uh, processing coming that will give us air mass velocity rather than total energy, uh, total energy um, varios that that's being worked on. That's just in the pipeline and being trialed now with, with uh, new Hawk algorithm. Sorry, back, back um, that up just for a sec. Explain that in a way that most people will get it. Variometer is a problem because total energy doesn't work very well. Mm-hmm. Total energy systems tell you whether the glider is gaining or losing energy. And people regard total energy systems as telling them whether the glider is going up and down or not. But it's not. It's whether it's gaining or losing an energy. So if you fly into lift, there's a little bit of a delay before the glider registers enough vertical height to, reg- to move the vario. So mm-hmm. there's a second or so delay. If you fly into a positive or negative gust, let's imagine a positive gust, the airspeed suddenly jumps from, say, 60 to 65 knots. The Vario sees that as an increase in energy, which it is. And it's instant because the MS doesn't have to change momentum. So you get a very fast indication of airspeed changes that are caused by turbulence in the thermal. But no lift. And there's circumstances, but not lift. So this means that the the Vario lies to us. Now, experienced pilots know that if, if... lift isn't backed up by some sort of sensation it's probably nonsense but they don't necessarily know why the answer to that is to use extremely fast accurate processing fast accurate transducers and accurate gps positioning and um solid state gyros Hmm. to model the flight path of the essentially model the flight path of the glider see what's coming in at all the sensors and ports and work out what the air's doing to you wow in other words, you should be able to deduce not only wind, which is, if at the moment we work on total energy and we look at wind, but what you want to do is look at the velocity of the air mass, not cut it into wind and vertical movement, to look at the velocity of the air mass. So you fly into a thermal and it's a bit of a push forward, so the air is coming, say, from below you and in front. Imagine an, air, an arrow coming mm-hmm. from, say, your, your knees to your forehead. That's the direction the wind's going in, the movement of the air. That's the velocity of the air mass, not total energy. Total energy would give you lift and a bit of a headwind push. So if you look at the velocity of the air mass, then you can make deductions about how the thermal works, but you can't easily write an interface so you can see that and understand it. What Alex have done is try to move that that whole idea forwards. Hmm. And I haven't seen the results, but I've read the paper on how they do the filtering. It's some sort of a Kármán filter, as I understand, which uh, any radio, any um, any communications engineer would understand what right. a Kármán filtering system is. So a cu- is. couple of rooms of very smart engineers who have their heads in computers trying to figure all this stuff out. I think it might transform our understanding of how the MS moves around. I was very lucky hmm. to... Sp- very lucky to spend a lot of time flying in a very sheery environment. That's the wave interface in New Zealand, yeah. where you're flying in rotor thermals and coming up in big shear. So I understand a little bit from experience um, what you tend to, tend to feel in Europe or America um, in thermal soaring. You get little bits of shear, but it's not so obvious that you can really identify what's going on. Anyway, step forward in technology. So to return to the book, 
this this um, level of technology plus the um, connectivity that's coming in all our machines. You know, my, my mate Hugh, my, my, my uh, crew for this week, Hugh was trying to update his car, connecting his car to the internet to update the operating system and the nav system, for instance. Right. So my glider connects to the internet now via the phone to update the tasks, to update databases, to update um, firmware. Just connected to the internet. Possibly get real time weather while you're flying. I haven't yet experimented with that one, but yes. So all of this stuff, all of this stuff is important. All of the conspicuity stuff—that's FLAM and ADSB—that's all moving really quickly. Um, The rules are in a state of flux. So I wanted a, I wanted a unit with the FLAM built in to the uh, flight computer so I could access the flam, flam through the glider's uh, computer controls rather than having to connect to the flam with a laptop and update it or change parameters with a laptop. I just wanted to be able to do it really quickly, have the flexibility. Because we can, now, I mean, now, for instance, you can select a different flam ID. Right. For instance, you can just change the flam ID. Bang, bang. If you've got the flam built into the LX. Now, I'm... I'm not saying it's the only flight computer around. It's the one I've chosen to go to, having spent years with ClearNav, um, and I still love their variometer. But uh, it's it's just a viciously competitive environment now. Mm-hmm. And if you're if you're flying in if you're flying in international competitions, and I'm sort of grimly hanging on to being able to fly into internet in international competitions, I'm just sort of hanging on by my fingernails. If you're doing that, then it's it's ruthless. You, you know, it, the, the decisions are made for you. Listen, you know, by the nature of the competition. Gee, you've spent a lot of time looking at all this technology and the new designs and, and concepts that are out there. Has has new design and this latest greatest technology has it made our sport safer or more complicated? It's made our sport less safe and much more complicated and more difficult. Um, I would say. Interesting. Heads, heads Flam, not out of the cockpit enough? No, I'm absolutely convinced that Flam technologies and high-tech computers have made our sport less safe because it's much more heading to cockpit time. Hmm. Yeah. Much more heading cockpit time. So what do we, what do, we do to change that? How do we change our, our thinking? How do we change the way we fly to keep our heads out of the cockpit a bit more? I don't think you can. Hmm. Honestly, I don't think you can. I've done a lot of coaching. I've sat behind... I remember sitting behind somebody in Western Australia and we, we climbed in the thermal and left up the street. Um, the guy left the thermal and nearly ran into the glider in the next thermal because he was mucking around with the PDA. Mm-hmm. And I was watching him tap at the PDA and I was watching the glider coming up and I was watching his head and thinking, well, I'm not going to take over yet. Let's see what he does. And we'd have run straight through this guy's core. Right. It was obvious where you were going to go because it was a street. We had the drift line. We were going up the drift line, obviously, and he was looking at the PDA. And he'd seen the glider in the thermal after that, but he hadn't seen the one we were going to hit. And this happens all the time. I'm, I'm just as guilty as the next man. I'm no hero. I mean, I've, I've got limited ability to deal with the equipment. I've, I've made some – I've written very careful profiles for my flight computer and my backup flight computer, the UD, uh, really careful pro- profiles that try to – try to get all the information in well let's start with big enough numbers because i'm 62 and my eyes are going like every 62 year old in the world big enough numbers and multiple screens and careful design of the profile so everything's laid out but even so it's a lot of head downtime and sometimes i just sort of go tilt like a like a slot machine my, my mind just explodes and i can't deal with the complexity of what's coming in 
I can fly the bloody glider. That's not a problem. Yeah, I, you know, I, I can look at clouds. And that's that's you. not difficult. You know, it's a very good point for so, us to all keep in mind. I'm in the same boat, roughly the same age, and uh, it's just to remind ourselves to to concentrate on the flying when we're flying and not, you know, dealing with computer issues. But but the reality is you have to deal with the computer issue. If you're if you're flying in an international competition right. and you're in the start zone and you're up near cloud base and there's 15 other gliders flying in the same circle and you're all flying around at sort of 65 knots with the brakes cracked every every other circle just to stay below cloud base or to stay below the maximum height that you've been given or whatever. You know, I'll, I'll work with my teammates and one of them will say, hmm, looks like the Germans are moving to the line. Wait, we'll do another two circles. Germans have started. Shall we move towards the line? Uh, where's the French? And then it'll be, oh, no, no. Uh, Uvi's turned around, and uh, well, we can stay here for a while. And we're doing that whilst we're going around at thermal and cloud base in formation flight. Right. Huh. Yeah. You know that's that's that is the reality. That is what you're going to do. And if you've got an iPad type thing up in front of you in the car, you are going to tap away with it and tap away at it and bring up the nav menus or bring up the music menus or reply to a bloody text. That's what people do. They're driving down the road and they're doing all that nonsense. I know the law says you shouldn't touch it, but I've, I've gone past truck drivers that have said they're in the truck. The Polish truck drivers driving them down the motorway, watching porn on their iPads. You see the, you see the <laughs> truck weaving from side to side. You know, let's, let's uh, not no. beat about the bush. This is truth. This is real. Yeah, it's not, yeah, no, no, I, I not what know. you want to hear. Yeah. It's not what the government wants to hear. It's not what you want to hear. It's not what we want to do. But that, that's, that's what's going on. So I'm not watching porn on my iPad, but I am looking at whether not the, the Germans are the, glider the line or not. Anyway, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I do have an iPad in my truck, but I genuinely don't watch the television when I'm driving. <laughs> Listen, the, <laughs> I just don't. This, this Volume 4, I recommend it to, to any pilot, whether a novice or experienced, because I, I have learned some things out of it. Um, before I let you go, I notice that this volume is dedicated to Phil Phillips. Who is Phil Phillips, and why is it dedicated to him? Okay, so, yeah, well, you don't... Back up. When I, when I started in gliding, I had a lot of help from a lot of people. Uh, when I started the profession, you know, the people that taught me to fly in the first place, and as I started as a professional kind of pilot, um, a lot of people have given me a lot of help. Anyway, um, Phil Phillips, he was a um, military man, came out of the military, and he ran Lasham. He was the manager of Lasham. And he gave me a chance. I, I went to Phil after 10 years of being a piano teacher. It just drove me nuts. And I went to Phil and said, I need to come and work as a gliding instructor. I can teach. I've got an instructor rating. I can do this. And he sort of looked me up and down. He said, all the jobs are full. full. <laughs> um, he said, but I'll tell you what, I'll give you a job next spring. I'll give you a job next year. I'll reserve the job for you next year. And um, I did the job. And uh, I did one year. And then he put me, because I was an experienced cross-country pilot, and an experienced one-on-one -on -one teacher from playing the piano and teaching the piano for 10 years. I could teach and I could fly cross-country. So I managed to skip years and years of flying Avenitios in, in K-13s. I got the Janus. The next year he gave me the Janus and said, go and run all the cross-country courses. 
So it was just terrific. And um, I managed to repay him by breaking a K-13, almost clean in half. But, you know, as they say, shit happens. Um, and I had one or two really, really narrow squeaks with the chainers. But, but you know, I was young and lucky. And, and, and anyway, so it was Phil Phillips. He he looked at this rather, rather um, slightly, slightly socially dysfunctional, slightly nervous mother's boy of a glider pilot. Because I was a bit of a mum's boy and a classical classical pianist right classical mm-hmm. pianist you know not 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 your normal take for a glider pilot and he and he saw through that and he gave me a job believed in me nice and i i owe him i owe him a career in gliding nice lovely guy and he was he was kind of a short slightly tubby individual it was just hilarious he built built home built home airplanes which was great but the funniest thing or one of the funniest things i ever saw we uh, went out one day. One of the customers came and leant across the counter and said, "Quick, there's gliders blowing across the road." Because it was apps. We we had a, a weather event went through. We're all standing around in the clubhouse looking at the weather warning that's just come off the fax. This is a long time ago, and it said 80 miles an hour plus winds. And we're all standing looking at each other. And this guy comes and hollers across the counter. You've got gliders blowing across the road. So we drove up the airfield in a hurry. And I always remember Phil getting out of the truck and running towards the trailers, which were moving around and some of them blowing away. And the wind took him and he backpedaled and backpedaled and he just slammed up against the side of this trailer. You could just visualize it like a cartoon. Slam! Arms and legs spread eagle against the back of this trailer. I think he left a dent in it. And I'll just always remember him doing that. Well, he's hilarious. Anyways, lovely guy. Yeah, I was just going to say, sounds like a lovely man and and obviously a big influence on your life and your gliding. So, yeah, great. That's very nice that you dedicated it to him. Well, I've I've just been... People have been great to me. You know, you don't get anywhere in any kind of discipline or career without people who know, um, pushing you forward, giving you opportunities, giving you chances. I mean, I've had other people shut me down, but yeah, I I owe... Quite a few people, a lot. So yeah, he's one of those guys. And he sadly he retired, and then he sadly died a bit, a bit too bloody young. And it's just you know life's not right. fair like that. So so he's well, sadly. I'm, I'm glad we've heard about him. And uh, gee, again, thank you for coming on to the podcast and telling us about Volume Four. I'll tell uh, listeners where to where to get it to, in the extra to this interview. But uh, thank you again, and I do hope you manage to get some more contest days in uh, without too many more weather shutdowns. <laughs> what do you think the chances are? Yeah, I think slow. I think rubbish. <laughs> weather's rubbish until the middle of next week is what I've heard. All right. Ah, there you go. Well, good luck. All right. Well, thanks very much, Harry. I'll go and have another beer now. Sounds like a plan. <laughs> we'll talk to you later. Thanks, G. <laughs> All right. Cheers. Okay, cheers. Bye. G. Dale spoke to me from Lasham, the United Kingdom. If you want a copy of Volume 4 of The Soaring Engine, go to G's page, which is thesoaringengine.co.uk. That's thesoaringengine.co.uk. The Soaring Engine may also be available with your local gliding equipment distributor. And if you're wondering how the contest at Lasham turned out, go to lashamgliding.com. That's lashamgliding.com. That's it for episode number 25 of The Thermal. I will be back again in August with another show. I can be reached at thethermalpodcast at gmail.com. That's thethermalpodcast at gmail.com. 
Thanks for centering the thermal. See you next time. I'm Harry Tenkate. Fly safe and get vaccinated. I've had my double dose and don't regret it for a second.